Hey everyone, it's Kelsey, producer of The Suzanne Venker Show. This week we're going to be doing a rebroadcast of an episode that aired on May 17th of 2020. It is episode 44, and it is called On Being a Millennial, a Mother, and Jordan Peterson's Daughter with Michaela Peterson. We'll be back next week with new exciting content. Suzanne's actually going to be interviewing one of her coaching clients. So don't forget to tune in next week. It's going to be a great show. And just a reminder, you can listen to The Suzanne Venker Show wherever you get your audio podcasts. So Apple iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and even Pandora. And as you know, we're now doing an audiovisual component on YouTube. So thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Broadcasting from the Hair Saloon corporate offices, it's the Suzanne Venker Show, where men and women are equal in value, but wildly different by nature. Join us here every week when we challenge the culture's hugely flawed narratives regarding men, women, sex, and love. Today on the show, we'll talk with Michaela Peterson, daughter of Jordan Peterson, about being a millennial, being a mother, and being Jordan Peterson's daughter. But before we do that, a couple of quick announcements. I'm rolling out a plan to take the Suzanne Venker Show to the next level. My goal is to continue to provide you with incredible guests and to keep the show commercial free. In order to do this, I'm now accepting donations from listeners via Patreon. Whatever you're able to give per month, your donations will go straight to funding this mission for my podcast. And best of all, when you become a Patreon subscriber, you get great perks like free ebooks, exclusive content, a live Q&A with me, and a shout out on the show, depending on which tier you choose. For information on how to become a Patreon subscriber, go to SuzanneBanker.com slash podcast and click on Become a Patron. It's hard enough to be a millennial these days, but does being Jordan Peterson's daughter make it easier or harder? Michaela Peterson is perhaps best known for being Jordan Peterson's daughter, but she wears many hats. She's the CEO of her father's company, Luminate Enterprises, as well as the author of the blog, Don't Eat That, which highlights Michaela's journey into remission from juvenile arthritis, severe depression, and chronic fatigue by using an all-beef elimination diet known as the Lion Diet. Most importantly, Michaela is a married mother of one daughter and lives in Toronto. Welcome to the show, Michaela. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. So I just wanted um, to let my listeners know that, so Michaela got with me a couple weeks ago because she has her own new podcast that's going to be coming up later this month, I think, called The Michaela Peterson Show. So she interviewed me for that, and then I in turn invited her on mine. So that's how she and I got together. Michaela, when is that podcast debuting? Um, I'm thinking late May. I still don't have a date. I'm trying to do around the 21st, so May 21st. That's the goal. Have you been wanting to do this for a while, the podcast? Yeah, I've I've been thinking about doing a podcast for about a year, but I've been completely swamped with other things, Other but things. now that there's everyone's stuck at home with the pandemic, I thought I know. might as well jump on the opportunity. I know. Now, what's the focus going to be? Or is there a particular um, focus? There hasn't been a focus. I, I really just want to talk to people I'm interested in speaking with. And I think I'm lucky enough to have um, a bit of a reach. So yeah. if I reach out to someone, they say yes to talking to me about whatever I'm interested in. I think that's pretty lucky. Awesome. That is lucky. Okay, so before we get into things, Michaela, I want you to tell us a little bit about Jordan, how he's doing and all of that. I know he's working on another book, which I'm sure my listeners would be interested in hearing about, but does he have plans to return to to public life because we miss him? (laughs) Yeah, Um, he does probably not for another six months. Okay. So he's taken it easy for a while. He has finished his newest book. Ooh. uh, but I'm not allowed to talk about when it's out or anything, yeah. but he did finish editing it. So that's really exciting. Um, he's okay. Uh, like all the tours and everything he did. And then my mom getting sick and then him getting sick, sick has really taken a toll. So he's taking, he'd like to come back. We'll see. It's really hard to tell. Um, fall earliest next January latest. Okay. Something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't even imagine when he was doing all that. I said to my husband, "This guy's gonna keel over. He's just doing too much. There's just no way you can keep that up." Yeah, it was a lot. It was 180. He did a tour of 180 cities in one year. 
So he was flying in the morning, doing a show, a three hour lecture. Yeah, I went to and one that's of them. without notes. Yeah. Right? A three yeah. hour lecture without notes in the evening, uh, sleeping and then flying the next day. I don't understand and, the jet lag part. That's the part where I thought, how do you go from country to country with no schedule? I, I don't know. He was like, I don't get jet lag. It's like, how do you not get jet lag? Everyone gets jet lag. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the one thing I used to, I was thinking about a lot when that was going on. Cause for me, oh my God, my sleep is everything. Okay. Yeah. Well, all right. So, so that's good. I, I'm glad he's, he's on the mend and potentially going to be back. So I want to yeah. start by talking to you about something that is important, I think, to both of us. And that's, the deep desire for truth. This is something that's very dear to me. It really undergirds everything that I've done in the last 20 years. And as you know, truth tellers are very opposed to political correctness or to being politically correct. So let's talk about that subject. It seems like you might have a leg up in this department being Jordan's daughter. And I'm wondering how that has affected you relative to your contemporaries in particular, because I think that's really fascinating, especially because you're a millennial. And I should back up real quickly and say that you are 28. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. 28 years old. So she's, you're right at the tail end. I think millennials are now 25 to 40, something like that. So you're sort of at the tail end. That interests me, you know, that whole political correctness of, did you grow up, you know, with a keen understanding of what that is and why it's not a good thing? Or is this more recent in the last, in your adulthood? Or how did that play out for you? Um, I, I don't think I started to be aware of what political correctness was until probably university. Um, so first year of university, I definitely had issues with it. Um, it was starting to infiltrate my university courses and I wasn't particularly interested in learning I didn't know what it was, but it didn't feel right. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, it, it just didn't feel right. You, it didn't have so, a name. It had a feel, it had a feeling, no, not it, a name. Yeah. 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 It wasn't, it wasn't obvious um, at that point exactly what it was. Um, I think it was closer to 2000 and, oh, well, I read your book. I read your book when I first went to university, the flip side of feminism. Um, and that would have been 2011 or 2012. Yeah, that's when it came out. Um, yeah. 2011. Yeah. I bought a whole bunch of books. Like I had this feminism, um, feminism in all of my courses. Of course. Like, of course. It's no longer yeah, just women's and, studies. Yeah. And I was like, why, like, why is this happening? Why is it here? It was in things like, um, I was taking classics and I was reading Homer through the feminist lens. And I was like, this is, I don't want to be doing this. This isn't what I was interested. I'm paying for this course yeah. and I want to learn about Homer. Like, um, so I, bought a bunch of books and I, one of the books I bought was, um, your book, which I really enjoyed. Um, but yeah, it wasn't that obvious, I guess, until more probably till 2013 or 2014 when people started talking more about it being called political correctness. And it was just basically how to not offend people. Right. Yes, yeah. Like, right. Or assuming you, you know how to do that. Right. I thought a lot about how to really define this for people in a way that's just very simple. And to me, all I just come up with is basically saying that which you know is not true just to make people feel good. I, I mean, yeah, that's what it is. That's you, really good. Yeah. And, and, and an even simpler way of saying, um, well, lying, <laughs> you call that lying. Yeah, that is, <laughs> yeah. If you just want to bring it down to vast tra- uh, basics, it's, um, it's lying to make somebody feel good so that they don't have to hear something that's difficult in which case you are not doing them any service at all. You're making yourself feel better. Really, that's what it's about, is making yourself feel like a good person, but you're doing it at their expense because you're not telling them the truth. And I'm not good with that. Like, that's what drives me. And I first experienced it when I was a teacher way back when. So I'm interested in how that how that experience of yours then gelled with your dad's rise where the where he was at the university and didn't partake you know the very first thing that happened that began his whole journey where he was fighting against that dictate about telling the you know that you have to use certain pronouns or whatever where did that come in like were you guys talking about political correctness and saying things like this is crazy in your own home prior to this happening to him when you got married 
things were perfect. You were both in love and life was good. Then somewhere along the line, everything changed. She changed, or maybe he did. Either which way, now your relationship feels, well, hard. I coach husbands and wives who feel lonely, disrespected, or misunderstood in their relationship. So many women today are desperate for their husbands to step up to the plate, to make a decision and to stick to it, to lead rather than to follow. Ladies, you have the power to make it happen. Men respond best to women who are grounded in their feminine core. As for husbands, so many of them want their wives to stop nagging and to just trust them, to smile more and to complain less, to look at them the way they did when they were first dating. Men, you have the power to make it happen. Women respond best to men who are grounded in their masculine core. The secret to lasting love rests in the masculine-feminine dance. Once you master it, your relationship will no longer be difficult. You'll be moving with the biological tide rather than against it. And that makes marriage smooth sailing. If you're struggling in your relationship, if you feel frustrated or alone, I can help. Just go to SuzanneBanker.com, that's S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-V-E-N-K-E-R.com, and click on the coaching button at the top. Don't wait another minute to acquire the mindset you need to find love and to sustain it. It's so much easier than you think. That's SuzanneVenker.com. Were you guys talking about political correctness and saying things like, this is crazy in your own home prior to this happening to him? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I complained a lot about feminism in my university courses. uh, And so that would have been 2000 and I think that was 2011. Um, And I talked to him a lot about that. And then when I, I moved out of that university and switched universities, moved home, um, and I brought all my feminism books with me and gave them to dad and he read all of them. Um, but, and so, and then that was also a number of years after he started seeing the political correctness interfere with his work at the university. Um, and he noticed it in HR departments, slowly mm-hmm. putting guidelines on how to behave and what to talk about. Um, and so, yeah, before he went public with it there, he complained and ranted about probably in universities for at least four years maybe five um so let's go back to my original question about you compared to your contemporaries because i imagine you had an upbringing somewhat like my daughters and sons because to grow up in a home where this is (laughs) constantly railed against and discussed is you know different from your average home and um it's been interesting for my daughter because she's not really a conflict oriented person and she doesn't really get into um you know get on her soapbox about anything but she definitely has a leg up in terms of information that's for sure so again going back to my question about your contemporaries how do you differ from your contemporaries or do you with respect to this issue thinking outside the box you know uh i to say i went to an art school in high school and so that was very politically correct but like I said, the whole politically correct thing wasn't a big deal when I was in high school. It really started when I went to university. Um, and then, yes, I was alienated from my peer group. But I also had friends that were on the same like side as me. Mm-hmm. Um, and my best friend that I, that I lived with was really good friends. All her friends were in women's studies. Mm-hmm. She was in sociology, and she's incredibly disagreeable. So she'd write you know, a pro-feminist paper because that's what the – that's what she had to do in university in order yep, to pass her yep, course yep. courses. It's ridiculous. She'd write all this. She'd be like, this is such, you know, this is such BS writing this paper and then handed it in and was like, why are you even taking these courses? Um, so it didn't, it alienated me from people I didn't really want to be friends with anyways. Exactly. Right. <sighs> it's a great excuse or reason to pull back and you don't even, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, people have asked me that a lot. Like, how do you deal with, being so contrary and, and people knowing, you know, has, has that work in your friendships or whatever? Well, you, you don't waste any time. That's for sure. Because yeah. what you see is what you get. And if you don't like that about me, you're not going to want to probably hang out with me. So that saves us all some time, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. That's, that's how I felt. It's like, did oh, you, I don't really want to be friends with you anyway. So did you leave the university over this or that was for other reasons? Um, it was for like a plethora of reasons. I switched what I was doing. I switched out of psychology. I was pretty fed up with psychology after two years of having all my courses infiltrated by, it was mainly feminism. Um, so I switched out of psychology. Mostly I got really sick. So I dropped out of university for about six months when I got really sick, um, recovered a little bit and went back, um, into a science degree. I just, I was like, I'm not going back into the arts. The arts are dead. 
Like, oh. uh, unless you want to learn about something that's politically correct. It was in my English, my history. Um, I didn't, it wasn't in history until around 2014 when I went back. Like, what are the arts like that maybe don't have this underlying politically, political correctness problem? I thought, well, history, like say something American history. That I was wrong about that. So it turns <laughs> yeah, out it time. had infiltrated into there at that point. But um, yeah, I switched into sciences because it was less there, significantly less there. And believe it or not, Michaela, this is, it's not new. I mean, my husband's 56, 56, 56. <laughs> and um, uh, when he was in college, it was, it was just beginning. He was just seeing the, the seeds of the whole thing and he was frustrated even then. So that shows you really how deeply rooted it is and as to how long it's been going on. Okay, so that's really interesting. So speaking of getting sick, let's talk about your lion diet for a moment. I want you to explain first for my listeners what that is real quick, and then we'll, we'll move from there. Okay, so the, the thing that I've called the lion diet is an all-beef diet. So as ridiculous as that sounds, it's literally beef. I've, I have some lamb too, salt, water, that's it. And I've been doing that since 2017, so quite a while at this point. And the reason I got to that is because um, I had, you mentioned it, I, had, I was diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis when I was seven. And it was really, ex- and it was a really extreme version of juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. I ended up with my hip and ankle replaced when I was 17. Um, and it turned out after, you know, four years of research and three years of testing things out that I was really, really reactive to foods. Um, and mainly the more obvious ones like gluten was a really big issue. Uh, dairy gave me terrible flare ups. Um, and I got to the point where I cut everything. I knew that beef wasn't giving me issues. And after having an autoimmune disorder, going to an all beef diet, isn't that big a deal. Mm -hmm. Uh, the autoimmune disorder is significantly worse than a restrictive diet. Uh, and I cut everything. And the reason I cut everything is a, because I knew beef wasn't bothering me and B because I needed to reduce the number of variables in my diet. And even a restrictive diet had too many variables. My symptoms were going up and down every three days, new ones were cropping up. So it was like digestive problems, fatigue, rashes. Um, mainly the mood symptoms were what I was trying to get under control and cognitive symptoms. Uh, so I cut back to all beef and just waited to see if I could get myself into remission. Um, and it's been extremely successful for me. I'm not on any medications and I was on two types of immune suppressants and antidepressants and Adderall for, uh, idiopathic hypersomnia. So that's the chronic fatigue. Um, I took medications for over 15 years every day. I thought I was going to be medicated forever. Um, and so the lion diet is what I've called this. Basically it's an extreme elimination diet. Um, and the goal and what I'm trying to do with the platform I have is tell people who have health problems that one, they have some control over them because one of the things that happens when you're sick is you go to a doctor, this is what happened to me. You go to a doctor and they say, well, this is really bad luck and something's wrong, but there isn't really anything you can do about it. And then you have this horrible sense of helplessness and it's just not true. There are things you can do um, really regardless of, I mean, obviously there are outliers, but even if you have something extremely severe, like I had joints replaced, there's still something that I could have been doing about it. So I'm trying to tell people, here's an elimination diet you can use to rule out the diet component of whatever's bugging you. Um, and you have some responsibility to try and figure out what's wrong with you yeah. and Perhaps, yeah. Uh, so that's the part that interests me the most about this. Um, sort of goes along the lines with the political correctness in terms of thinking outside the box. Because, um, you know, I don't have any real opinion about the lion diet per se. I know it's very controversial. I'm sure you've had a lot of people tell you you're crazy and that's terrible for you and yada, yes. yada, yada. Yes. But my interest in this really is more about how, you, so you wrote on your blog that you began documenting your diet journey to help other people. This is um, your blog called Don't Eat That, and that you do it to help people realize that they can solve problems themselves, quote, rather than rely on others to do it for them. And I think this is so important, and it really goes hand in hand with my thinking as far as um, you just even the way I was raised and the way I 
I think, which is that you don't depend on even doctors, right? You don't just let them rule your, um, you you have one body, right? You have to know it and health, your health is in your hands. And there are so many things that doctors will not tell you because there's a conflict of interest there for one thing. (laughs) They want to be needed, right? And they have, um, they have their thought processes and you have yours, but it seems to me that you're really big on getting people to know their own bodies and read them and, and do for yourself what you can. So, for example, people, there's a lot of problems that people have that obesity will completely get rid of if they're not overweight. But doctors won't tell you that. They're not going to look at you and say, look, you need to lose 100 pounds or whatever, and then these problems will go away. Because, first of all, that, that doesn't serve them at all because they want to think you have a bigger problem maybe than you do um, that they can help you solve. And B, nobody wants to tell people that it's as simple as maybe losing a lot of weight. Oh, yeah. then the whole political correctness problem totally in- intertwines with that. Exactly. Because you can't tell. Even one of my dad's friends got in trouble for using the word crazy in her class. And it was like, what do you... One of your you dad's You're what? not allowed to... Uh, who, who one did? of my dad's... Student? Um, one of his... No, his friend. She's a, she's a psychologist um, at a university in Toronto. Oh, and she was teaching her class and she used the word crazy. Yeah, described yeah, somebody right. as crazy. Right. Which you can't do. No, you can't do. No. <laughs> so I don't like it it's hard to tell people or how are you supposed to talk to people about their health if you're not allowed to use descriptive words? <laughs> I cannot think of anything. I, I seriously cannot think of anything that bugs me more than this issue. It's so funny because my whole, you know, my work has all been about fighting feminism and being pro-family. And yet uh, an even bigger issue is really this, because this is that's sort of an offshoot of this. It's not telling the truth for some other damn agenda that is not at all helpful to you. So your life is basically yeah. being ruined so that they can get their needs met for whatever that is. It's just wrong. It's messed up. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and if you're quiet about it and you go along with it, you're just as bad as them. You know, you have to be able to tell your kids, your friends, wh- whoever, tactfully so and in the right environment, the truth, um, not necessarily unsolicited. You know, it depends on the relationship, obviously. When someone asks you a question, do you want to know the truth and solve it or do you just want to be told pretty talk? You know, I mean, that's not helpful. So, no. Yeah, this that's what the thing about your your diet and how you've taken it into your own hands to figure out an answer and encouraging other people to do that so that they're not just you know, they're just trying something that they wouldn't otherwise be told to do and just seeing how it works so they can think for themselves essentially, right? Yeah, yeah, and ideally that at least gets people into the mindset that they have some control and like what to look into because I was always looking into things, but kind of my main reliance was doctors. Um, and it was a complete paradigm shift when I was like, oh no, I have to research. And sometimes there are things just because, just because they're a doctor doesn't mean that they know best, which was that just totally like changed my outlook on life for a very long time. Yeah. My, my mom grew up, I'm not grew up, sorry. I grew up with my mom. Um, Every medical problem that she and my dad would have over the years, she had stacks of books, stacks and stacks. And she literally studied it as though she was, she might as well have gotten a PhD in these different things. Well, exactly. That's what you have to do. Yes. So to see that uh, growing up, even without talking about it, is such a modeling in terms of the way you think Uh that it wouldn't dawn on me to go to a doctor and say, yes, doctor, whatever you say, doctor, okay, I'll do what you say, you know, like, no, (laughs) Yeah. And you were, you were lucky, right? Yes. Like I, I grew up and it really was, well, some things, you know, my parents got hit with a kid who was diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder and couldn't walk very well when she was seven. Like that was rough. It was like, whoa, we have no idea yeah. what to do here. Um, let's go to the specialists. So then yeah. for my whole life, it was, well, here's a problem. Let's go to a specialist. And I, it wasn't until I was, I was 19 and I'd gone to a bunch of specialists for some skin problem. And I had one specialist tell me it was my fault, like that I was doing it. It was a rash. It was like that I was doing it to myself. And I was like, okay, this is enough. Like I need to start looking at scientific articles. But, and I was, I wasn't old. I was 19 and that's when I started. But, um, it wasn't until I tw- was 23 when I came to the diet conclusion and got off of medications, um, that it really changed the way I thought. It was like, huh, I need to tell other people that they need to do yeah. some research. <laughs> Definitely. Oh my gosh. Well, that's. Awesome. Okay. So then we're going to shift gears now. 
and we're gonna let's talk about the news media. <laughs> One of my favorite topics. That's fun. <laughs> that yeah. is fun. So I've listened to a few of your interviews, and it sounds like you were a little bit green as I once was originally when you didn't understand the nastiness and corruption of mainstream news outlets. Yes. So tell us about your experience with them when your dad rose to fame so quickly, because I, I, st- I saw the very huge disconnect between what the media was selling to the public about your dad and then you, what your dad was saying was his experience out on the street and how those two just didn't match at all. Yeah, that was that was weird. Um, I was always reading. There's a newspaper called the Metro, and I was always reading that on the way to school. And it has you know celebrity gossip and whatnot. Reading it, thinking, oh well, that, you know that those are interesting stories. That's just must be a portrayal of what actually happened. And then Dad's, you know, professor against Bill C sixteen YouTube video went viral, and he started being in the Metro. But what was in the Metro wasn't actually what was happening in real life. And I was like, Oh my God, if they're doing this to my dad, then how many of the things that I've read in the last 15 years just aren't accurate at all. Um, and then it was like CNN and Buzzfeed news is a terrible one, but it was everywhere, everywhere he was mentioned. And there was something that was just completely wrong. And I was like, Oh, it's every news source. That's scary. Um, considering I hadn't thought about that. Yes. So all of a sudden you're like synapses, you're like, wait, wait. And then you go back and think about everything you've ever ingested from the media and start freaking out that you might be wrong about all this stuff, right? (laughs) Yes, that's exactly. I had that experience with doctors and I had that experience with media. Has there been anything else? A lot. It's a lot. You know, I was originally going to title this on my my site, um, the interview with you, Thinking and Living Outside the Box. I've sort of changed it since then. But that was my first thought when I thought of this conversation, because I didn't know how else to like encapsulate everything we're talking about, because it really does have one general umbrella. And that is that, you know, thinking and living outside the box rather than according to the status quo and what you're told to do. And I just think, you know, we could get into a whole conversation about coronavirus, which we don't have to, but this is this what's currently happening right now is just a huge study in human behavior and how the vast majority of people are like sheep, right? And they're not, they have no, they just read it, read a headline and go with it. And then that person tells the next person, then that person tells the next person. The next thing you know, we're all doing this thing, but we have no idea why. Well, I'm not, but (laughs) some of us aren't. (laughs) Some of ours aren't doing what we're supposed to because we're supposedly, you know, we're bad, right? You're bad if you don't do what you're told. This is the answer and this is how it should be, but there's no digging. So unless you dig for that information yourself, you are basically just sheep. Yes. Yeah. It's hard for people too. Um, to d- it's a lot easier being a sheep than digging. Way easier. Yeah, but it it's easier, but it also like, one of the things I've been learning um, more recently is when I was younger, I used to think about things logically, you know, make lists, write pros and cons and try and reason instead of kind of listen to my gut. And I don't want to, and since I've gotten older, I've realized if I'm in a situation or something and I get viscerally uncomfortable, that's something I should really pay attention to. And I think that's something that happens when people are around people who are politically correct, that they ignore. So they think, okay, I'm physically uncomfortable right now, but this is the right thing to do, isn't it? And so instead of thinking with their body, they just think in in a different way. And I used to think that was better because, you know, you can write lists and logic out scenarios, but I've learned since I got older that I'm actually pretty good at judging situations based on how uncomfortable I am. And that's something to really pay attention to. That's a very good uh, guideline. Really good point, Michaela. That's good. So it's a sign, right? It's an indicator. It's like, hello, pay attention, pay attention. You know, if you're not, if you're uncomfortable, you don't have to stay that way. There's an answer for this. You can figure out a way to get that answer rather than just, because I know so many people who will just, you can see them thinking, you know, you're in a conversation and you can see they disagree, but it's in their face. It's in their eyes, but they're frozen. They're frozen. And at the very least, I want them and I, I think they're frozen a lot because they just simply don't have the answer. They know how they feel, but they can't articulate mm-hmm. it, which I totally that, appreciate. But I want them to feel comfortable to say, I don't, I don't think that's right, but I don't know exactly why, but I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> In my ideal world, yeah. you'd at least just say what you're thinking because I think people end up really holding on to all that and they get resentful and it's not helpful. 
to their psyche. Yeah. You know, I want people to be able to say what they're thinking, even when it's against the status quo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like I always considered that, you know, those feelings that I would get, I always considered that kind of hippy dippy. And I didn't, I was just like, well, that's not right. Because I can think more, I can think better than I can feel. But it, it turns out that those, that discomfort that you get in situations that, um, yeah, maybe somebody's lying to you and you yeah. know, lying to you and you don't exactly know how to articulate it, it would be better if people could say, you know what? No, I don't agree. But I need some time to like write right. out my thoughts. Exactly. Where I can get back to you. Yeah. But this doesn't feel right. So I'm not going along with it. Yeah. We're going to switch gears again and talk about my favorite topic. You had a recent post on Facebook, which you put next to a picture of your lovely daughter, Scarlett, who is how old? Uh, almost three. She's going to be three in August. Oh my gosh. That's an awesome age. Three is great. It is. Yeah. So I love what you wrote. You said, quote, the idea nowadays that women should have a career first wait until it's literally biologically more dangerous to have children and that children ruin your lives is total malarkey. If you're in your twenties as a woman and you want kids, that is an in big all caps, normal and healthy. Don't let the morons tell you otherwise. <laughs> End quote. Yeah, I did. Yeah. And it's funny. <laughs> it's so interesting to me to look at it's, you know, I, I swear I can't believe I, I feel like I just gave birth yesterday. I just cannot believe it's been 20 years since I had my first and to I, I can be in your space where you are right now with a three year old like that, you know, like just in my head. I feel like I was just there yesterday. So I know how strongly the poll feels to speak out and to say these things that you're recognizing pretty much only after the fact. Right. Um and that, and I get that. And so I have a real big disconnect between people who are able to receive the kinds of things that I talk about with this issue in their 20s versus their 30s, because they're so much more receptive mm -hmm. in their 30s. But I know you're referring mm -hmm. here to the biological clock, which, of course, you're right. But there's another aspect of this conversation that your dad has addressed, and that's the obvious shift in priorities that occurs for most women between around 20 and 30 years of age. Let's listen to him just for a minute. What's the relative importance of career and motherhood in the typical woman's life? I'm 55, and so, and I've been working with men and women my entire life, and I've watched this. And it's quite obvious. It's like at 19, it's all career. By 30, that's just not the case. It's not the case. I don't, I don't know if I've seen a single woman who I didn't think had a psychological problem who hadn't seriously flipped in their attitude towards the balance of, of family and career by the time they were 30. And then you see lots of women who at 40 haven't had kids and perhaps wanted to, and that's a, not a pleasant situation. I was talking to a woman who is about 39, a professional woman, attractive, well put together, competent, well-educated, successful in her profession, unmarried, in a relationship with an older guy, but unmarried, and desperate to have a child. She said no one ever talked to her about the fact that she'd actually want to have a family or encouraged her to think about doing that. It was as if it wasn't within the realm of possibility that one of the things that she might have the ambition to do would be to be a mother. And that's just not acceptable. So I have to tell you, Michaela, of all the things that Jordan has you know, to discuss or did discuss during his time there out in the media that, and, he, and that wasn't the only time he talked about that. I've heard him several times talk about that. That's the one that got me so, so into him <laughs> because it's so rare. I mean, first of all, you just flat out, I've been saying this for years. You don't hear this loud enough in, in a vociferous manner like that. And you certainly don't hear it in the news media with the women because they're not going to tell you that. And I've gone up against those women over the years on this issue. And I believe that it takes somebody who's, you know, got that big and could say it that loudly to get people to hear. So I'm wondering, did you always this is did you grow up getting this from your mom and your dad? Um, what he was basically talking about there so that you always were, again, thinking sort of outside the box than other women or, or how did that go down? Um, I think so. I mean, I grew up, I, I would assume so. Um, I was told, you know, definitely get a university degree and you want to get a job, but 
you're going to want to have a family. So that that's always been there. Um, being a stay at home mom was extremely encouraged. Um, my mom stayed home with us. Um, so yes, that's been around throughout my life. What wasn't around though was, you know, have kids younger. That was me. Like I, I knew when I was, you know, probably late teens. Well, I wanted kids. I always liked kids. I wanted kids um, young because I knew the whole biological clock thing. I knew it was going to be easier when you were younger. And I thought, well, then when your kids leave home, you're going to be young enough that you can still have a life. Um, so I wanted to do that. And I had a really hard time when I was trying to plan my life, trying to figure out how I was going to end up with the amount of education I wanted and have kids at the same time. And that was really hard. And it occurred to me at some point, I might have to choose if I want to have kids in my 20s. Maybe I can't. I wanted to be a surgeon at one point. It was like, that's probably off the table. And that was hard for me because um, I'm very academic and career oriented. And I was like, you know what? It kind of looks like I can't really have both. I've, I'm somehow managing kind of to have both right now, but I think that that's rare and I'm really lucky, but, um, that was hard. Like, um, compared to other, like my friends around me, most people, I don't think most people's families talked about it, that they might want to have kids and that having them young was okay. In fact, most of my friends were told to hold off, don't get pregnant. Like that was, yes, that's, that's what most of my friends. Thought. Yes. And not just your, again, not just your generation. You're going all the way. This has been going on for 30 years. And that's what's gotten us to this place now where women are, like your dad was describing, stuck, um, miserable. I mean, miserable doesn't even begin to cut it when you find out you can't have children. That's not even the strong enough word. And I that, can't even imagine that. No. And that is solely because of a political agenda that got infused into this society as though it was normal, as though it was progress, as though, you know, men and women aren't different and don't need to think about their lives differently. It was such a colossal, fat lie. And so many Mm -hmm. lives are ruined as a result of that in so many different ways. Yeah. So to get that information, and I'm like you, I was raised do and be whatever you want, but this is the most significant part of your life and you're going to want it and you're going to have to figure out how to fit it in. And like from day one, I was mapping that out. And um, I didn't realize what a huge leg up that was until later, yeah. later. Um, and I have a friend, it's interesting that you said that about wanting to be a surgeon. I have a friend whose daughter is literally right now making that decision over exactly what you just said. Like she, she's, she's torn and she's leaning now toward the teaching end. She's a she's into science too, biology, mm-hmm. and wanted to potentially be a, a I don't know about a surgeon, maybe, but a doctor, and um, is is thinking about going into a different realm because of that exact issue that you just described. And that needs to be um, encouraged and allowed, you know, for women, in mm-hmm. order for them to feel free to get their lives in order, right? Um, and if you can't even talk yeah. about it because it's not PC, we keep coming back to that same theme. It's not PC. It's not PC. Then you are contributing to ruining people's lives because you don't have the courage to say something different than they're being told. Yeah, it's worse than that. Even it's not even that it's it's not encouraged. It's you're told that if you want something that isn't a career, if you want a family, that's beneath you, and that's what it's almost like. That's what stupider people do. Like that's kind oh. of. Like absolutely, in fact, which is, or that as if that's the easier option. It, that's that's the problem is you're told that oh if you're you know lazy and not as educated that's the easier option, which is a, a like three lies, three lies, and you can see how the people the young women who are getting degrees in these huge numbers that really would screw them up because they really believe that oh I either can be smart or I can do this other thing. The idea that you can be smart. And be at home for X amount of years that you can jump out and still be that intelligent, um, vibrant, whatever woman. Um, It isn't one or the other. You absolutely don't have to give up your anything to be to to um, to to spend those years um, at home with your kids. And I don't even just mean just on those early years, just being a mother in general. I think the idea that it that it holds you back as opposed to quite the opposite. And you just wrote and yeah. yeah. And so I want to talk about that because you just, I noticed that on Instagram you wrote something that's, that's just what today or yesterday 
to that to that effect, I want to read it because I think it's really powerful and I think it gets to the heart of what we're talking about. You wrote, being a mom is really hard. It's not just about being responsible for another human being. It's not just about pregnancy or breastfeeding or money. It's about learning how to navigate relationships. It's about figuring out when you're wrong and how to fix it so that you don't pass your bad habits on to another human who doesn't deserve them. It's about dealing with your past so that you don't project it onto your kid's future. It's about negotiating with your partner so your home isn't toxic to be in. It's really, really, really intense. It's also about your kid's first smile and laugh and the entirely new emotions you feel that you don't experience until you have a kid. It's about giving up some parts of your hedonistic life so you can take part in something bigger. Imagine if that were the message that young women got ad nauseum instead of the one that they get. I mean, think about the encouragement and the excitement that would come along with that. It's just mind-boggling, right? And who's going to say that in such a loud way where it can be heard? Because all the messages that that women get are coming from mostly the universities and media. And you certainly can't rely on the women there uh, to tell you that because, of course, they believe something very different, don't they? Yeah, yeah. It at least at least podcasts are picking up. Like people I think I, I don't know, it's hard for me to tell. Now that I've you know, now that I see what what mainstream media is really like, I have a hard time um not seeing the other side. So because I know about the intellectual dark web and listen to certain podcasts, it's hard for me to tell if that information is more available than it was for me, you know, five years ago. Or if that's just what I see now, do you think people, do you think people have an easier time seeing the other side now that there's other forms of media available like podcasts? Oh, I absolutely do. The difference between you and me, I mean, our age, obviously, but also you came at this sort of reversed. You started with the dark web, right? And with your dad and like that whole alternative media. And then you came head to head with the mainstream media and saw the difference there. For me, when I started 20 years ago, the very first book I wrote was on the work of motherhood, was on those early years and how significant this work is. And I got thrown into the lion's den because my publisher at the time changed the title and sort of went on the attack. And the mommy wars were a big thing at that time. So I was reamed. I mean, that's why I was saying I was green at the beginning of this podcast, because I was on CNN. I think CNN was my very first interview ever. And um, I there the explanation. That's another thing about watching your dad, like with the Kathy Newman interview um, or really any interview, especially with a woman when the topic is feminism. It's like I was in that seat. You know, I can feel it. And unfortunately, I didn't do nearly as good of a job as he did. (laughs) Um, But I. I know what that feels like, and it's so maddening. It's a deliberate attempt to twist and to turn and to make you out to be this crazy person so that mm-hmm. your message comes through. And unless you're, until you're really skilled in that, and it took me, I mean, I'm obviously much better now, I hope, but um, back then I, I did okay, but it, it was just shocking. Just shocking. Like, I knew they weren't going to be on my side, per se, but I didn't understand the extent of the corruption, you know, and how um, it was really the bias at that time. You, I don't know if you remember the book Bias. It was called just Bias by Bernard Goldberg. And that came out the yeah. same year my first book did. And so that was simultaneously going on where the whole concept of liberal media bias was becoming into the mainstream America. They were understanding it in a way. I knew it because of Phyllis, my aunt's um, experience with the media that's being projected right now in Mrs. America. I don't know if you're watching that. Oh, no, I'm not. Yeah. Um, that's a that whole thing. Interesting. Yeah, on yeah. Hulu, on Hulu. And it's, yeah, that's another conversation. But anyway, so I knew about media bias from that, but I, I didn't understand it until I was thrown to the wolves. So your question was, yes, yes, the last five years of alternative media has been just an enormous boon for this issue. I mean, with we are in such a different place than we were 20 years ago. So you're very you're right. Yeah. yeah. Trump too. Not, yeah. not not to bring Trump into this, yeah. but I mean, he's made it mainstream where it's like don't trust the media. Like oh. I don't know how more obvious it can be <laughs> than your president saying these people are lying to you. It's like, "Oh, well." I mean, actually that, that's I forgot about that. I mean, that's been in my my personal my absolute favorite 
thing about his presidency. You could, I don't, I don't care about the rest. That's been like my most yeah. favorite part of the whole thing is to have somebody up there um, managing the media the way he does so spectacularly and calling it out. I mean, that's no matter what else you might say about him, that's that was yeah. it's so satisfying for people like myself who who know what it is like and want someone else to sort of you know bang that drum. Yeah, yeah, Good yeah, point. yeah. No, it is satisfying. Person. Oh, dating and marriage with millennials. Michaela, holy crap. It is a mess. It yeah. is a mess. I love talking with millennials like yourself who are married with a baby or two because you're so far ahead of the game. Because I see it. I see the struggles of your generation and what a complete nightmare it has become. How do you manage that being sort of on the outside of it now with your friends? Um, well, or do you uh, see it? I mean, I, I maybe it's I, just I mine. Okay, I, I do see it. I mean, most of my close friends now are engaged, or they've been okay. in relationships for like five years. So that when I was a little bit younger, say twenty five, it was a lot bigger of an issue. With um, well, honestly, too, I don't even think it was. It's women that are the biggest issue right now. Um, they're, they have their issues and it's a problem, but it's very difficult to find a man, um, a millennial man who actually wants to get married and settle down. Um, so that's kind of what my dad was trying to tap, take some responsibilities. Right. A lot of the problems, um, I had were men's men and not wanting to settle down. Right. And there are, you know. There are reasons for that, you know, because I've, I've written extensively like, look, do we think that the last generation of women just churned out a bunch of loser men? You know, something happened here. Something went very, very wrong yes. in the last several decades. And you have to go back and look at those things critically and understand, beginning with the birth control pill, because in my opinion, that's where it all begins. I, yes. Yes. I was hoping that that we would get into that because that is a disaster. And nobody talks about that. Nobody that's one of talks about controversial things. Like, oh no, there's nothing wrong with the birth control pill. <laughs> okay. Daddy, oh, you yeah. should not be Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Because this if is you a huge problem. it's a huge it's 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 where everything began. Because when you stop and think about the catalyst that changed everything between women and men and their getting together to create families, it was the pill. Once you took away that scare, <laughs> right, of of bringing life into the world. And having to create a family and having your life irrevocably changed, you're putting so much power in your hands, which seemed good at the time, but invariably, it doesn't just allow you to have babies when you want. It's much bigger than that because, okay, let's say you're going to wait 10 or 15 years and you're in your la-la mind. You think that that's going to work, which it's not just because you have the birth control pill. But let's just say that you, you did. What are you going to do in the meantime? How are your relationships going to go in the meantime? If there's no thought of marriage and family, how does that change mm-hmm. the entire dating and marital, well, forget marriage, the dating and relationship issue? Um, how do you move forward with that sort of out of the picture? So it's much deeper than just, oh, keeping yourself from getting pregnant or, or pl- family planning or what have you. And this isn't a call against the birth control and to, to, to say it should not exist. That's not the point. The point is to understand what's happened between women and men and where that fit in. Yeah, 100%. I mean, what's the point of dating if you're not going to get married, right? Mm-hmm. And what's the point of getting married if you're not going to have kids, right? It, it just bingo. It, it goes in a line. And the other issue I have with the pill is there are actual serious like side effects that a number of women get that are not discussed like the propensity towards depression when you take the pill isn't something you're warned about and I had a miserable time on the pill and I didn't know so I stopped taking it mm-hmm. my friend who is the happiest person I've ever met gets depressed when she takes it and it's like well that doesn't happen to me but it's not something that's really discussed so then you have something that's yeah manipulating relationships in a way that nobody could foresee and potentially causing actual mental, well, depression, which is huge. 
Right. So there's the physical downsides for sure, unquestionably. But going back to the issue about what's happened with men, well, you basically said to a guy by what this basically said to a guy is, you no longer need to be careful with women. You no longer need to think of them as different from you because now guess what? They can do what you can do. Right. Mm -hmm. And we know what you want to do all the time. So (laughs) let's pretend that women are exactly the same sexually just because we gave them a pill and kept them from being able to get pregnant. I mean, it changes the entire dynamic of that relationship and where it's going to go. So there's no way to have your cake and eat it, too. If you're going to say, "Okay, let's do this, you got to understand how we got to this mess we are now where men are no longer marriage material and what happened there, and it's, it's more than the birth control pill. Believe me, I, I yes. know that. But it started with that. That's my point, that it all starts with the sex. It really does. And then from there, it just yeah. it just got worse with other issues as to how men and yeah. women relate. But it began with that. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the other problem with the pill, I have so many problems with the pill, is if you're in a relationship and you're not trying to have babies, you're kind of telling them they're not good enough, like on a biological level. Right. If you're kind of or if you're with someone, you're like, you're yeah, I'll date you, but I don't want to have kids with you. It's kind of an insult down to like your core, uh, given our evolution of needing to have kids to pass on on your genes. So there's that, too. There is that. Um, There is that. And then you're making a statement by saying, you know, I can now have sex without this concern, why are we questioning why 30 years later men, A, expect it when they didn't expect it before, and B, don't want to get married? I'm not understanding why we're not understanding how those are connected. Yeah. Um, you know, you reap what you sow. You, 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 this is, we've created this. I know. It, it's sad. And it, it, it does definitely, it wrecks people's lives. Like I do know some people who ended up in their late thirties and then couldn't have kids. And it was like, that is so horrible. If that's what you want, that's so awful. It's so there. Like I said earlier, like I don't have a strong enough word for it. It's so you, you, it's so you can't even get your head into it because you can't imagine the pain. You can't imagine the emptiness if you want a baby and literally cannot have one. Yeah, it's tragic. And that you could have. You could have. That's the other piece of it. Like yeah. If you literally just couldn't, because that's the way your body was, okay. But you eschewed it for 15 years made and now can't, you made a mistake. Yeah. And you have to sit. I, I can't yeah. even. Oh, this is why I hate feminism. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, let's end with um, modern parenting. This seems to go hand in hand with this. This is kind of good. So there's a chapter in your dad's book called Don't Let Your Children Do Anything That Would Make You Dislike Them, which I think I saw an interview with him recently where he thought that chapter was going to get him into trouble, but actually didn't. But tell people what the gist of that chapter is, because the title sounds, you know, a little different than what's actually in there, sort of. Um, So let's talk about what's in that chapter and how that sort of governs your views of parenting. Um, okay. So this was really helpful for me when I was babysitting growing up. It was like, you don't have a kid that bugs you. If they're doing something, the gist of it was, is if they're doing something that bugs you, that activity is definitely going to bug someone who isn't their parent, because at least their parent has some sort of unconditional love for them. So if it bugs you, it's really going to bug somebody else. So, you know, teach them that that's not what they should be doing. So that was, that was instrumental in how I, I used to go and uh, nanny my cousins. Mm-hmm. And if they did annoying things, I was younger, if they did annoying things, you can explain to a kid that they're being annoying and that they have to stop doing that because people will be annoyed and then not like them and they won't want to be friends with them if they continue to be annoying. So it's kind of taking some of those ideas into how you raise kids. And then you can also enjoy being around your kid if they don't bug you all the time. Like if they're going around hitting a pan with a spoon constantly, right? Don't let them do that if it makes you dislike them because that's cruel. So another way of putting this could be, hey, there's a huge disconnect between modern parenting and old-fashioned, what I call old-fashioned or traditional parenting when it comes to discipline because this is really about discipline, right? It's about how to discipline, which is a good word, 
a very good word in our day, but, but now it's a bad word. It's like disciplining is punishment or, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're, you're supposed to befriend your child rather than, um, discipline them while you're loving them, you know, but discipline is love. And this used to bother, it doesn't bother me anymore because I'm almost, my kids are almost up and out, but I remember over the years, I mean, you're about, I think, Michaela, you're just about to begin to see the differences perhaps in the way you might parent your daughter versus other people, whether your friends, family, people out there, and you'll see it. And you're going to go on with that for the next 10 years. You can't help but notice it. And sometimes it does affect you because, it, you know, let's say, you know, they get to the point where they're having a playmate with someone else's kid, right? And oh, that yeah. parent isn't going to do what you're going to do. And it's going to make you crazy because you have to decide, well, do I step in? I used to have a rule that people sort of know that if they were coming over to my house to play, I treat the other kids like my own, right? So I would quote unquote discipline them, if you want to call it that. I, I would I would treat them exactly the way I treat my own kid if they're in my care. Um, but if everybody was there and the moms were there, because I used to do a mom's group, um, then I would never, ever, if the other parents there, because that's their job. But then if they don't, mm-hmm. you have to just sit there and be quiet, and it is so hard. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I had, oh, my God. Well, um, <laughs> we we flew back from Russia with my dad, and there was this kid on the airplane who was probably seven, and it's a 12-hour flight, so, you know, good for you for being good for 12 hours. But he was walking around. He was just being a brat, <laughs> and I have so little patience for brats. And he walked around and he came and I think he could tell that he was bugging me and he came over and poked me. And I, this is on a Russian. And so I like, I yelled on the flight <laughs> and what? his parents weren't even paying. He came over and like jabbed me in the chest. And I was like, yet <laughs> was like just a little Russian kid. Right. And he was just like, Whoa, he'd never been like stopped talked yeah, or, yes. to directly. Yes. Um, and he went back and sat down and I was like, well, that was way easier than I thought it was going to be just yelling. Yet to the, like a so, little kid. So but. take that, Michaela, take that, and then imagine it's a, well, you wouldn't have done it that way, but imagine if you're in a group with <laughs> friends, mothers, right? Or you're the kids. And you, oh, and, yeah. And you can't do that, and then they're not doing anything, and you're like, well, you just discipline the kid. You know, you're thinking this in your head. It, it's very difficult. Oh, very Talk about yeah. political incorrectness yet again, you know. Um, it's hard. That's going to be tricky. Yeah. I never is. thought I'd be yelling at a child on a plane in Russia, but it did happen. <laughs> oh my god that's a story yeah so modern parenting well good luck with it you'll be, you'll do great <laughs> but thank it'll be you, you know you. it's always easier when people are like-minded on that though i have to say so you're in yeah. toronto right you're still in toronto i'm in florida actually we're going we've been here throughout this whole pandemic issue um we're going back at the end of may oh awesome how's the weather down in florida amazing oh my god really my assistant's down there on i don't know if you're on the gulf or the atlantic but she's miserable because it's in the 90s and she's hot as hell and it's humid and she says it's terrible maybe that's not where you are well (laughs) compared to moscow it's really nice ah okay yes my my comparison is is it's dark and cloudy and has six hours of sunlight so oh my i couldn't deal with that no well, this has been really great, really great conversation, Michaela. So fun to talk to you. And thank you for inviting me on your program. And again, everybody check out also Michaela's podcast, which is, I guess, at the end of this um, month. So where can people, tell people where they can find out about that and just your work in general. Um, you can go to MichaelaPeterson.com. Um, you might want to spell Michaela. Yeah, I, yeah, I need you. M-I-K-H-A-I-L-A peterson.com and that has all my information i'm also on instagram michaela peterson um and facebook all the same uh, and youtube but um most of my information is on my website my podcast will be up there um hopefully third week of may awesome look forward to it well you have a lot going on have a uh, wonderful time with all your all your ventures and um especially as a mom it's such a fun time thank you very much <laughs> thanks for having me on Good conversation. Awesome. Thanks, Michaela. Take care. And now we go to the email of the day. This is from Leon, who writes, Dear Suzanne, I'm 34 and I have a female friend and she's about 14 years older than I am. We get along great. We both respect each other and communicate really well. I get the idea that she's interested in me and I'm interested in her too. How do women feel about younger men? 
What are the chances of making it should we both decide to be more than friends? So, you know, whenever I'm asked questions like this, the only thing I can do is think about it in terms of what would I do? Uh, Obviously, I'm not the man in this particular situation. But what we know essentially is that there's a reason why you find older men with younger women far more than the reverse. And this should not be surprising to most people who listen to this podcast. But the bottom line is uh, several reasons. Number one, if you want to have a family, obviously having a woman who's 15 years older than you is not going to work out too well. But then even if that's not an issue, what ends up happening very often is that it becomes more of a mother-son relationship than it does a partnership. And even if it doesn't start out that way, because there are, you know, at the beginning when you're dating, I could see in certain circumstances where it may not feel that way. But in time, it goes against what evolutionary wise we want in an opposite sex. Now, that's not to say that nobody everywhere can make that circumstance work. So it's not about, yes, you should or no, you shouldn't. It's just about being aware of the special challenges that you will likely face down the road. And then, you know, depending on your individual circumstances, like whether or not you want children, that might be a factor. I had a um, coaching session with a gentleman last year who was in this very situation, but he did want a family. And he was with someone who was 10 or 15 years older, much further along in her career. So they were already having issues because she made significantly more than he did. He was on his way, but he just wasn't there yet. And so there was that disconnect between them that was already problematic. And then she wanted children too, but she was 40. And, you know, just the reality of his being able to have a natural family with her, not to mention the huge financial imbalance, was just a bad deal all the way around, you know, more for him. So, you know, these are, this is the reality of the situation. I, you know, you have to decide for yourself, but you need to look at it with a much more objective mindset when you're dealing with something that's that, you know, that's that not typically how most people do things. So hope that helps, Leon. Don't forget to continue the conversation on Facebook. Just type in the Suzanne Venker Show in the Facebook search bar and you'll find it. Also, please recommend this podcast to one friend you think would enjoy it. Finally, if you have a question or comment for me, you can email me at Suzanne at the Suzanne Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great week. Bye.